0: Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by Pharmac. I'm Dr Louise Kugler, and today I'm talking to Dr Michael Boyd about the goals of care in end-stage dementia. Michael is a nurse practitioner and the associate professor with the School of Nursing and Department of Geriatric Medicine at the University of Auckland. Her main research interests are the care of older adults in the community and residential aged care and advanced nursing practice. She is currently the primary investigator for the end-of-life with Dementia Study, funded by the National Science Challenge and Ageing Well Stream. Welcome, Michael. Thanks. So End of Life Care and Dementia aims to support the individual and their whanau in the later stage of a life-limiting condition. In this podcast, we're going to use a case to demonstrate some of the points. Mrs A is an 84-year-old Maori elder. She comes to you as a new patient. She is accompanied by her daughter, who lives in Wellington, eight hours away from her and also one of her carers. She resides in an apartment within a retirement village. She has carers 24 hours a day, except Sunday afternoons. Mrs A nods occasionally in the room, but doesn't actually contribute to the conversation. You notice she is quite frail. She pushes out of her chair with her arms. She no longer drives and is incontinent. She wears pull-ups. Her HbA1c was measured at her previous GP and was 53 millimoles per litre. Recurrent UTIs are her family's most pressing worry currently. Dementia is not specifically mentioned as a current health concern. Her daughter is quite anxious and seems quite stressed at this initial appointment. You inquire to the level of care that Mrs A and her family are looking for and ask if an advanced care plan is in place and if an EPOA has been set up. This seems to create some tension in the room. So Michael, what are the challenges for older people with dementia? There's multiple challenges (laughs) for older people with
1: dementia. Um, I think um, one of the challenges for us is that it's a long term, slow decline. And so it's not a a very, it's not a real, it's not like cancer where you kind of, in the old days, not so much anymore, but in the old days, you kind of got cancer, then we deemed you palliative, and then, you know, we got the palliative care services involved. Basically, what now is happening is that we talk about a palliative approach rather than whether somebody is, quote, unquote, palliative. And the palliative approach also for people with dementia really needs to incorporate the, the concepts of geriatric assessment, geriatric uh, comprehensive assessment that includes functionality, their physical and medical health concerns, and, but also their quality of life. You know, how are they doing? And people with dementia, even in the community, can have great quality of life, even though their memory isn't uh, that great. So that's one of the challenges. The other challenge is who's going to care for them. And so the cares for people with dementia are often very stressed. They're sad and they're grieving. And often they get angry um, at the services that aren't there. So as providers, we often face all of the care's stress as well as the people with dementia and their stress. Nobody wants their loved one to go into care. That's a universal statement I can make. And so one of the things about particularly dementia, but also frailty, is that with dementia, there does often come a time when it is no longer feasible for a care, particularly if they're in their 80s or 90s, which happens, um, to provide that care. So there's a lot of shame uh, that we give to residential aged care. I work in residential aged care. So one of the things that I like to advocate is for us to think about the care continuum, and that includes residential aged care. That's where our frailest older people live. And so that we somehow take that stigma that if you can't provide that care, 24-hour care, which is highly stressful um, and mostly falls on women, That it's okay. That that's what the the situation. That's what our healthcare system is set up to provide is that really intense twenty four hour care that's needed at the very end. And and I think this is important. They get tired, and so when you get tired, you lash out. Um, You get angry. This is that person's asked you that same question five times, or you or you want to say, do you remember? And they don't remember. Um, And it and it's the it's that. Loss of that conversation that you used to have is so distressing and so um, sad for, for all of us who have loved ones with dementia. And so what can happen at times is we have to be on the, on the alert for abuse. Um, there's lots of forms of abuse that everybody knows, but I'm just, I'll just go over a few. I think it's really important. Financial abuse is incredibly easy to do when somebody can't remember um, and so it often starts out as, oh, I'll just take $50 here out of their FPOS, and sometimes it can progress where hundreds and thousands of dollars are taken out of accounts. And that causes tremendous uh, discord in families, as you can imagine. The other f- forms of financial abuse that are really rife with people with dementia, particularly those that are living on their own, is um, the prize money, um, where they're offered prize money if they send in money. Nice. Um, or um, signing up for charitable giving when it's not actually charitable giving. So they do things that they wouldn't normally do um, or buy things online, you know, repeatedly. So I would class that as financial abuse. There's also a neglect um, that happens. And and often it's not because people don't care. It's because people don't know how to do it. So, um, for instance... We're gonna take care of mom till the bitter end, which is fantastic, but they don't really have the skills or the knowledge to know that just laying in the back bedroom is not care. Um, so helping, un- helping carers to understand what is involved in caring I think is, is also important. Neglect can also happen in a more nefarious way where um, people don't wanna give up the house to pay for care um, so therefore, they say, "Look, we'll take care of mob at home, so we don't have to sell the house." But again, often I find that care is is not adequate. They don't understand the level at which that care requires. The other kind of abuse is uh, emotional abuse: um, belittling, sh- shaming, um, ignoring. Um, those are all kind of uh, emotional abuse. The other. Um, The other kinds of elder abuse that we um, talk about are um, physical abuse, of course. And uh, as a carer, again, you've known this person your whole life, and all of a sudden they're doing things that are very strange, particularly if they have behavioral issues with their dementia, um, which is common, and they strike out at you. It's easy to think you're going to strike back. um, Or if there's already been an existing abusive uh, situation in the family um, that just perpetuates as the person gets dementia. There's a couple of tools um, that are really important, uh, I think, for people to think about for looking for abuse. It's the common sense stuff that we would all think about, but what we do know from the research is that the more people can, the more regularly we do that screening, um, the better it is. So there's a tool called the Elder Abuse Screening Instrument called EASY. So it's EASY. <laughs> there's only five questions. And it's the questions that you would, would suspect are best questions. Do you rely on anybody for shopping, banking, meals, and personal care just to understand, you know, what help they're getting and who's doing that help? Um, has anyone prevented you from getting food, clothing, or kept you isolated? I think that's a really important thing. Have you been upset in any way by someone? how somebody has spoken to you Um, Has anybody forced you to sign anything um, that you didn't want to or take money from you that you didn't want? And then has anybody hurt you in any way? Um, There's also sexual abuse, which is much less common, but it certainly does happen, and that we put into that hurt or um, touched you in any way that you felt uncomfortable. There's, of course, with dementia, where it gets really tricky is a lot of times they can't tell us these things. And that's just the the problem with all care with people with dementia is they can't tell you when they're in pain they can't tell you when they're upset they can't you know they can show that they're upset but they don't necessarily tell you what's upsetting them so um, some signs of abuse would be they're not looking at you poor eye contact Um, they're withdrawn Um, they look afraid of their care Uh, they're malnourished they have poor hygiene um, they have cuts and bruises, of course. Uh, inappropriate clothing, so somebody's not caring for them that way. And then sometimes what we find is uh, medication compliance issues, so medi- medications are being pilfered by somebody else, and particularly opioids, of course. So those, those are really important things for all of us to think about every time we see an, an older person. The other real important aspect to this is to talk to the carer separately from the person with dementia. It's really important to do that. Often the carer doesn't want to say things in front of the person with dementia. And also, the the other is true, the person with dementia won't want to say that they feel abused by their carer. With the carer in the room, they may not feel safe, but they also just may not want to hurt their feelings. So um, just like you do with youth, it's really important to have those two separate conversations. I'd also say if you have anybody that's um, that the family comes in and they say, oh, look, we're really worried about her cognition or his con- cognition, it's really important to talk to the family separately and get, again, get their view of what's happening um, separate from the person that they're worried about because, again, they don't want to say, well, you know, she hasn't changed her clothes in a week, um, that kind of thing in front of their mother that they love, um, for instance. I think those are the real important things. It is important to, if there is any suspected abuse or problems, age concern is the place to go for that. Also um, I find the social workers at the DHBs very, very helpful, the community social workers are really helpful with that. There's often a multidisciplinary team aspect to that um, investigation of abuse, but certainly um, age concern is the first stop. Perfect,
0: some great points here, thank you very much. So we've mentioned previously that Mrs. A is Maori. Are there any particular cultural constraints that we should consider or any model of care that may be useful mm-hmm. with her?
1: Sure. I work at a, a rest home called um, c and Margaret Dudley's been doing some fantastic research in the Maori, the specific Maori way that we can help people with dementia. Um, and, and she's got some fantastic videos online, and she's working on a, a Māori-specific cognitive assessment tool. So she is the expert on this, and she does some, some great stuff. But one of her videos shows um, the rest home that I work in, so I'm quite proud of it, but <laughs> CDROME's Māori um, Day Program. Um, and we have in that program, uh, it's a the people in the community, Māori people in the community can, with dementia can come in for the day. We have a, a Tereo-speaking uh, facilitator, um, and it, it really, keeping connected to the Marai, keeping connected to Tereo, keeping connected um, to their culture actually really stimulates part of their brain that wouldn't normally be stimulating. We find people just really perk up and, and really connect particularly um, if they were uh, te reo speakers when they were young. Um, To have somebody who speaks te reo to them as they get dementia is actually really helpful. The singing is absolutely, the waiata is really important um, because that uses a different part of the brain. Mm. Um, And so we find those marae-based programs incredibly important and there are a few around and I'd love to see a lot more.
0: That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? So as a primary care physician or nurse practitioner, how can we identify that palliation is more appropriate for these people rather than active treatment?
1: Yes, I, this, is the, this is the journey of most of my days, <laughs> particularly in residential aged care. It's, um, it's, how I view it as a healthcare provider is I follow them and I, and it takes a lot of conversation. It takes a lot of... Uh, Trust um, to be able to make those decisions that are mutual and that we all agree that it's time uh, for these things. So, advanced care planning is really important. Um, Now, advanced care planning in primary health care settings and also in residential aged care settings is I find quite different than the 35year old who's contemplating life. It's a very different um, thing. We know that they're getting older. They know they're getting older. They know they have chronic disease, most of them, most of older people are frail or have dementia. So um, what we developed uh, for residential aged care was a two-page advanced care form uh, care plan form that uh, Auckland DHB has adopted. Um, and it's also in our frailty care guides. So it, it is available. Um, online through the Health Quality and Safety Commission. And what that includes, and I think these are the important bits about advanced care planning, is it includes, um, the first thing is, is is the person, does the person have the mental capacity to make this decision? And so that's the first thing we think about and talk about. There's a lot of misunderstanding about who can make decisions, and those kinds of things. And uh, according to New Zealand law, it goes like this. If the person has capacity, then they can make their own enduring power of attorney and their own end-of-life decisions. If the person does not have the capacity, and of course that's a big gray area, it's never straightforward. Um, if, they, if they don't have the mental capacity to do it, it is actually up to the healthcare provider team to decide However, the family can provide input, and so what we how we've structured it is we say, does the person have capacity to make this decision? Yes, then we just it's it's a straightforward process. If the person does not have capacity, which is often the case in residential aged care, then it's the family who we're consulting about what that person would like, but actually it's the healthcare team, and and that. It, it is a misunderstanding in the hospitals, it's a misunderstanding by families, it's a misunderstanding by a lot of people, but they don't understand it. By New Zealand law, if the medical intervention is futile in the eyes of the provider, then it, it doesn't go forward if that provider feels that that is not going to benefit. So that's, that's much different than the United States, and I'm from the States. Um, it's much different from, than the United States, uh, and I think it's appropriate. I I think it's really appropriate. So that's the first thing is capacity.
0: Can I just ask you about assessing capacity? Oh
1: yes, (laughs) yeah capacity assessment is is very fraught um, because there's different levels of capacity and that's the difficulty. Can I decide whether I want to do this activity is very different than can I decide to buy a house or can I decide to get married or I've certainly had those situations in my practice. So the first thing to think about regarding capacity, it's not just whether they have cognitive impairment or not, although that is an important piece. So you do want to do a cognitive impairment, and it is r- important to remember the cognitive assessment tools that we have for screening, such as the GPCOG, which is excellent, or the MOCA, are just, a set, are just screening tools, really. Um, And so they tell us if there is cognitive impairment present. It doesn't tell us whether they have capacity or not per se. Um, For instance, people with frontal lobe dementia have often great memories, and they pass the cognitive impairment tests (laughs) like MOCA and GPCOG. But when you start looking at their judgment, you start seeing that their judgment and their executive function is the thing that's really not working well. So it's not a straightforward process. Um, I will say about capacity assessment that the other thing to remember is that delirium uh, can be treated and that delirium should not be mistaken for um, somebody who has long-term capacity uh, issues. Often capacity issues can be straightforward if the dementia is advanced enough and you know, yes, this person doesn't have capacity that's, you know, fairly straightforward. And we can all do that um, in primary health care. It's the gray areas. And if there is gray areas, it's really good to get a psychogeriatric assessment. It's really good to get a team um, uh, MDT approach to that, a multidisciplinary team approach to that because, um, it, it's great to get all these different points of view, the occupational therapy point of view, the physical therapy point of view, the social worker point of view, the geriatrician point of view, the nurse practitioner point of view. It's, it's really helpful because it isn't straightforward at all. So the, that's my, my nuts and bolts of capacity assessment. Um, often in primary care, the GP will get a request for, is this person has this capacity? If you have concerns, it's better to get a full geriatric,
0: psychogeriatric assessment. Perfect. Thank you very much. So moving back to palliation. Yes. Yeah. So we were talking about oh, advanced active treatment planning. versus palliation. Yeah,
1: Let me, yeah so, so with, with advanced care planning, so the first thing is capacity. The second thing is CPR. And, and that's pretty straightforward, and we all ask that. And I usually try to ask it in a way that I don't just say, do you want us to start your heart? Because um, that doesn't help. Um, what I usually say is if you were to um, stop breathing, that seems to me a better way to say it rather than whether your heart stops or not. If you were to stop breathing, would you want us to um, let you die naturally, is another way to say it, um, or would you like us to try to restart the heart with CPR? In residential aged care environments, <clears throat> we know that the chances of coming back from CPR are less than 1%. Um, it's rather violent. Um, so we, we try to discourage it. For people that are clearly frail, that need 24-hour care, it's not, it's not useful for us. And so we try to discourage it. We do have families that, no matter what, you know, they want the CPR, that's, and that's their prerogative. Um, so the CPR discussion is, is important, but it's, it's kind of minor. <coughs> Usually that's an easy kind of discussion. The next part of the advanced care plan for older people is really important is enduring power of attorney. Mm. Who is it and has it been activated? That's the really important piece for us is I'll often have families come to me and say, well, I'm the EPOA and the person that they're talking about is completely mentally has the capacity to tell me what they want. So they're going to be the EPOA, but they can't make decisions for that person until they've been activated or deemed not to have the mental capacity. So I think we write that down too as well, and who is it? And then we try to get a copy of that EPOA. It's good for the primary healthcare provider to have it. It's really good for us at the um, residential aged care uh, situation to have it. And then, and then we go a little bit further, and, and for older people, one of the questions is, If you get really sick and it looks like you're going to die and I try to use the words die rather than pass away Mm. um, do you want hospitalization or do you particularly in residential aged care or do you want us to to provide you the care that you need here to keep you comfortable whatever that means you know comfortable because if you get a call after hours and uh, the nurse gives you a great assessment and then gets to the very end and says, oh, yeah, but they're not for hospitalization. That helps a lot <laughs> with the decision making about, yes, we need to start palliative care, you know, really strong interventions in that direction versus, oh, she's for CPR and the family really wants care, then the family deserves to have care. I mean, you know, it's, it, and in that situation, where we really are caring for the family yeah. <laughs> in some ways yes. then more of the older person. And it's that family's death as well. And so often the family feels uncomfortable, um, particularly in residential aged care, with just the comfort cares, unless we've had lots and lots of conversation. And it is about lots and lots of conversation. The other thing that's on our, our two-page thing, and it actually doesn't take that long, but it's really, a, it brings the conversation into who that person is, is that we ask What's important to them? What gives them meaning? And honestly, it doesn't take that long. It's usually grandkids or music or whatever. It's, 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 a, it's a fairly straightforward question, but it brings that conversation really personal. And I think that really helps with the advanced care planning conversation. We also ask, what does that person worry about? You know, Again, I'm talking from the perspective of somebody who has dementia, uh, who wouldn't be able to answer these questions themselves necessarily. So we're often asking families these questions. And the third question that we always ask is, is there any cultural beliefs that are really important to them or religious beliefs that are really important to them? So that we have that in our, our records as well. So we do that, uh, we try to do that on a proactive basis in the residential aged care facility every six months with families. Um, it, I think that kind of thing, uh, Die North is working on a similar thing for primary health care. I think it only takes... Honestly, it only takes about 15 minutes. It doesn't take that long. It's not a big, long, philosophical discussion. It's really kind of pragmatic. And so we've tried to get it to a place where it has meaning, but it's pragmatic um, because we know we don't have time to talk an hour about end-of-life wishes. So the other thing that we do is we give a copy, and we sign and you know date and all that kind of stuff, but we also give a copy to the family so that it's a shared document um, or to the older person if they have the capacity. Um, so they say, okay, look, and this can change. We, you know, we'll revisit this in six months and see how it goes. One of the things that I know we would all love is these documents to be available across the system. Um, and the other thing I would say about advanced care planning, there's two things I think that we need to consider about advanced care planning. First of all, even though you've had discussion after discussion after discussion, and you they have a lot of trust in you, when somebody starts to die, it is frightening to families. It is, you know, it sounds so theoretical when you're talking about it before they're dying, and then when they're dying, it's scary. So they will change their minds, and that's perfectly appropriate. The other thing I think that we need to think about as a profession for advanced care planning is that it's really a a wealthy Paki Hav point of view, in that I've gotten all the care I want, I've gotten all the care over the years, I've had my stents put in, and I've had my medications, and now I don't want anything else. That's very different for an Asian person. An Asian person expects to die in hospital. That is, so talking about advanced care planning with somebody from an Asian background, they have a very different point of view, and that's a, and I think we need to recognize that and also Māori people and Pacific people who may not have gotten healthcare that they've needed throughout their life anyway, and now you're saying you want to stop it. Um, so, so I think we need, to, we need to get better at a more uh, culturally-based advanced care planning process as well.
0: Just a couple more questions about advanced care planning. Ideally, these would these discussions would happen in primary care when mm. capacity is there, but they often don't. They what often do don't. you think the barriers to this are?
1: Time. I think time. I think pragmatic way of asking these questions. That's why we wanted to come up with a really straightforward way of doing it. And I also, also when somebody's looking at you nice and healthy, um, it seems really far away. So it's, I think it's hard to bring that topic up. How I usually bring the topic up, if they're nice and healthy, even in residential aged care and they're looking great, is I say, look, I have an advanced care plan, which I do. And um, I, I talk, I ask, I normalize it. So I say, everybody I, talk, everybody I talk to, I talk to about this. I'd like to just bring it up. So that's usually how I normalize it so that it doesn't feel like I'm saying you're gonna die. And so therefore, um, you know, we need to talk about advanced care planning.
0: The other thing you mentioned earlier was often things change Mm. and I wonder whose rights Mm. we should be upholding. The patient who says I don't want CPR when they had capacity versus they no longer have capacity and the family is saying we want CPR. Who's in the right and how do we deal with it? Yeah,
1: this is the journey, isn't it? Um, And you never know where that world's going to go. But from from kind of a, um, the right way to think about it, I think, is if that person said they don't want CPR when they had capacity, that's, a, that's it, that's it. If that person, if we're doing the advanced care planning after that person doesn't have capacity, then uh, we do all sorts of things. We have lots of conversations. I will say, I just had a recent situation where the, it was a Maori family. They were very clear that they wanted their mother who did not have capacity. To have CPR, what helped was have our Maori cultural advisor there, and that changed everything. Um, So, and also conversation, conversation, conversation. But if there is, if the treatment looks to be futile, and if CPR looks to be futile, it is a medical decision. So that's the other. If they don't have capacity, and actually, I mean, it is medical decision. Mm
0: Perfect. That clarifies it beautifully. Thank you. So managing symptoms in the end stage can be difficult, and you've mentioned assessment can be difficult with our dementia patients. I wonder if you can talk about um, how you do this and if there are any particular tools that you use to assist with this.
1: Yeah. Um, like I said, the GPCOG is really helpful. The MOCA is really helpful. Um, it is. So one of the controversies right now in primary health care is do you routinely assess um, kind of screen people for cognitive impairment. Um, the research is, is falling to the side of, no, we don't, that you only do it when they are showing signs. And I actually agree with that. Um, I think that's an important thing. So that's the first thing. The other thing I will say that a geriatric, a comprehensive geriatric assessment is the cornerstone of this care. That includes a um, all the geriatric syndromes, falls and incontinence and delirium and um, uh, uh, walking ability, mobility, uh, functional ability. Now, in primary health care, that's challenging because a good comprehensive assessment takes a good hour. One of the things that um, I've been able to be a part of the team that developed the care program uh, through Guatemala DHB where there was extra funding given to, given to primary healthcare practices um, with Dynorth uh, was the clinical lead for that. Um, and the practices were then, we upskilled the practice nurse to do that hour-long assessment, and they did a fantastic job. We have a, a, an electronic um, tool for that, so that that integrates with the PMS of the practice. And then there's a joint meeting uh, with the GP, the nurse, depends on how the practice wants to do it, but with the nurse and the older person to come up with a plan of care. So you have to have the time to do the comprehensive assessment. It really, there's not a lot of shortcut to that in, in the care of people with dementia or the pe- care of just frail people.
0: Before you mentioned that uh, often dementia patients end up dying in hospital, Tell us about that, because often, again, it may not be have been the patient's mm-hmm. choice. So
1: there's some really interesting uh, population data that's coming out about that. So one of the things that's really interesting is that the largest majority of deaths, of all deaths, the largest proportion of all deaths occur in residential aged care, and about almost depends on who you talk to, 70% of those will be people with dementia. The hosp- So actually, the use of hospitalization by people in residential aged care is actually quite low. And so they actually don't die in hospital. They die in residential aged care. There's a, 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 some great work done by Heather McLeod that actually shows very clearly that people, if they are in residential aged care with dementia and die there, they actually don't go to hospital that often, so that's that's an interesting thing. Um, people with chronic diseases in their last stages they do go to the hospital more than people with dementia. But that, if you think about it, it's the COPD and it's the CHF and it's the you know the chronic issues that um, tend to go to hospital more often. So I do find that interesting. The other th- the other interesting part about that um, population data is that. We're just beginning to see the bulge in deaths in older people. In the future, deaths will be older people. Um, There'll be very few people that are below 65, and there's a huge increase in deaths predicted for people over 85. If you're 85 and close to death, likely you're going to need 24-hour care, whether you're frail or have dementia So that's where I kind of go back to this, that residential aged care is part of the continuum. It's not a failure in any way.
0: Perfect, thank you. So Michael, often I find that uh, our dementia patients have a higher incidence of depression and anxiety. I wonder if you could comment on the need to treat these and how aggressively we should be managing Mm -hmm. these comorbidities.
1: It's a really an an important aspect to dementia care. We do know that there's a a higher proportion of people that have lifelong depression that also get dementia. We don't know chicken and egg. You know, do you get more depression because you have dementia or, you know, other way around? But what I do know is that when people get dementia, um, they start realizing that they have some problems. I think there's a low level of anxiety that comes with that. But also, again, I think there's physiological changes in the brain, and that might... uh, have them have a greater propensity for depression. So if I have somebody who is um, getting aggressive or agitated or um, not sleeping, um, I treat rather than the antipsychotics, we treat first for antidepressant, dep- with an antidepressant. The antidepressant that works really well for thin older people that aren't eating well particularly in the residential aged care environment, is mirtazapine, to tell you the truth, because it, um, it stimulates ap- appetite, and it helps them sleep if you give it at night. Um, so uh, I find mirtazapine just mir- a miraculous turnaround sometimes. In, and again, w- with all depression, the antidepressants don't make you happier, per se. They just m- allow you to cope better with the stressors of life, and I, I definitely see that in people with dementia. And if they're not thin? If they're not thin, yeah, because mirtazapine puts on the weight. If they're not thin, uh, citalopram is... But you got to be careful with citalopram because it'll drop their sodium. So it's, you know, there's... And that's the thing I also like about mirtazapine. It has much less hyponatremia with it than um, than the citalopram or the other SSRIs.
0: And the importance of
1: continuing to exercise or yes. psychological therapy? Absolutely. Um, isolation happens... Uh, often with people with dementia, because they can't have those conversations that they used to. So um, I will mention uh, any kind of social groups dementia Auckland has fantastic socialization groups where they go to the museum and walking groups and those kinds of so getting them hooked up now it's hard because particularly somebody at early stage dementia, they you say, well, I'm going to I'd like you to check out what's going on with Dementia Auckland. And it's the word dementia, sometimes that's really hard, but once they can get over that, that barrier, there are fantastic uh, programs out there with Dementia Auckland to help those folks keep active. But I agree with you, the more that they can exercise, uh, the better they'll sleep, the better they cope, um, and it's just good for overall health.
0: And just before we conclude, looping back to our case, um, we discussed that Mrs. A had incontinence and she'd had her HbA1c measured and was up. I suppose my question was should this have been measured? Mm-hmm. And now that we have it, what do we do with it? Really good questions. So I'll start with the HbA1c. There's
1: some, the, this is a really interesting area of geriatrics medicine, I have to say. What's coming out lately is the HbA1cs for older people it's okay to have them higher. Um, we just, it, it's actually more detrimental to have, to keep them in tight control with their um, blood sugars than it is to have that HbA1c a little bit higher. If we if we kind of think about it, why do we keep the HbA1c so low in younger diabetics is for the things that'll happen 10, 20 years down the road? Well, somebody who's 85, um, that's not as important. And so, We're really comfortable keeping those up between 50 and 60, to tell you the truth. Um, uh, The other thing um, that uh, that you mentioned, which I forgot. Oh,
0: incontinence. Oh,
1: incontinence. No, incontinence is a really big issue. Um, It's important to ask about it in primary healthcare because a lot of people won't volunteer it. So again, in a very nice normalizing way of, look, I ask all older women about or older men about incontinence. Um, And uh, of course, there's mild, moderate and severe incontinence. Severe incontinence absolutely is debilitating. People just don't get out of their houses sometimes because of it. So first of all, with mild incontinence, it is number one important to ask about it uh, and do the simple things. uh, s- certainly, estrogen cream really can help um, older women quite significantly. Uh, exercises, pelvic floor exercises are important, and in using just store-bought pads, just simple store-bought pads, because you know for mild to moderate um, incontinence. And in our in our work with care, we found a good 50% of women had incontinence of some sort. It's really common. For severe incontinence, it's really important uh, to get some uh, input from the DHB continence specialists. Um, usually they, for the referral, it will need to be severe incontinence and not mild incontinence. Um, uh, so those are the, just the quicks on that, the quick answer for that.
0: Perfect. Thank you. And concluding our podcast today, what would your top take-home tips mm-hmm. be for our listeners?
1: few things, um, that um, it is really important to not ignore the person that has cognitive impairment in primary health care. There's great pathways um, on the Auckland Regional Pathways and other, or, you know, around the country they have great pathways. The cognitive impairment pathway will be really helpful for this. So to assess it in primary health care is really important. Um, I think advanced care planning is really important just as an ongoing routine kind of thing that we do. Um, And I also think it's really important care stress cannot be underestimated. Um, And to help alleviate that stigma of, I just can't do this anymore, and to support them through that, because residential aged care is not a failure, it is a common and necessary part of the healthcare continuum. Um, so I think that that's also important and they can get some care support again through NGOs like um, Dementia Auckland.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. On our website, you'll also find a list of resources we've discussed today. And there's a wonderful podcast too by Dr Lucy Fergus on urinary incontinence in the elderly population, which may be worth listening to. Go to our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.